Well, let us begin with a prayer. Dear Father in heaven, we ask you, as we do every time we come together, to be with us. Speak to us in this time as we consider the bodies you have given us and what you have called us to do with them. Make my words your words and all of our thoughts your thoughts. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so this is the second week of our series on the biblical worldview. This morning we'll be talking about sex and sexuality. All the preliminary remarks that I made last week still hold true. The world is preaching its message about these things loudly, and it is incumbent upon me as your pastor to teach you God's good news and good plan for sexuality, even if I might feel inexpert in my qualifications to do so. We're doing this, teaching you God's plan, so that when the world comes knocking on your door or when your kid asks you a question about something they heard in school or when you're asked to hang a flag outside your business or called a name for your convictions, you'll have something to fall back on, something to rely on, something good to say. I heard someone recently say that our position, that is the biblical position on sex and sexuality, is the most unpopular thing we could possibly be saying during our current cultural moment. And yet, Jesus warned us that it would be so. If the world hates you, Jesus told his followers in John 15, remember that they hated me first. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now, this is not to say that our goal is to be hated, but simply to say that if we remain faithful to the truth, hatred in the eyes of the world seems to be the likely result. Like last week, we have blank question cards and a place in which to put them. Rather than try to answer just a few questions off the cuff, at the end of our time this morning, I'm going to collect questions and then devote an entire session two weeks from now to answering questions. That way, I'll have the opportunity to give the questions the thought and probably research that they'll deserve and require. We also have more copies of the reading list. As I said last week, there are many thinkers and writers who are more thoughtful, who have studied more deeply, and who are more effective communicators about these issues than I am. Please take advantage of the work of these people, just as I have, in preparing what I'm sharing with you in these classes. So, in order to get us into a proper, that is, biblical frame of mind, let's begin our time with a word of Scripture. This is a reading from Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs 
and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. I think actually that the place we have to begin our conversation about sex is by talking about why we have to have a conversation about sex. Evangelical Christians are often accused of being obsessed with sex. We're the ones complaining about what everyone else seems to take completely in stride. Everything from what passes for the young ladies' clothing section at Target and strip-teasing Super Bowl halftime shows to the proliferation of internet pornography and the existence of websites like Ashley Madison, which exists specifically to facilitate extramarital affairs. So why do we raise such a hue and cry? Why are we obsessed with sex? Well, three reasons. First of all, the world is obsessed with sex. After all, the world decides what clothing to sell at Target, puts on strip-teasing Super Bowl halftime shows, creates and endorses internet pornography, and supports and can sustain AshleyMadison.com. All that stuff all sells. Every ad you see on TV is sexualized. Every product is sold with sex. There's a reason every superhero suit is form-fitting. The tipping point for me personally was when the Minions, in a preview for one of those despicable me movies made for small children, one of the Minions made an illicit visual joke about another Minion's breast. Sex is everywhere. The world is obsessed with sex. So that's one reason we talk about it. Second, sex is an important topic for us because God puts sex at the very center of the created order. John Paul II, former Pope of the Roman Catholic Church, found that it was worth spending much of his ministry, both before and during his pontificate, developing, writing, and presenting a theology of the body. This was his life's work, and it's a work to which I'll be referring throughout this morning's presentation. We are created, as we read in Genesis 1, male and female in the image of God. That's important. Our individual sex is important, And as we'll see, the way we express ourselves sexually with each other is important. Sex lies at the heart of what it means to be an image bearer of God. Now third, and finally, despite all the eye rolling and rhetoric directed at us from outside the church, we talk about sex a lot because the Bible teaches that sexual sin is worth focusing on. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, St. Paul tells us to flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin, he says, a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So even though any sin 
is enough to separate you from the holiness of God outside of Christ's intervention. And no sin is enough to invalidate that finished saving work of Christ. There seems to be something about sexual sin that Paul, and therefore God, feels the need to warn us about in particular. Flee sexual immorality. That's the Bible's word on the matter. So that's why we talk about sex. Now we'll turn our attention to what we say about it. And as we begin, I want to share an unbiblical worldview with you. One that you'll find, if you look closely enough, has a lot of parallels in today's post-Christian world. This worldview is called Gnosticism. Now there are a lot of facets to Gnosticism, which gets its name from the Greek word for knowledge, gnosis, and included the belief that the way to escape this carnal realm was through special secret knowledge. Now, I don't have the time or the expertise, honestly, to give you a full overview of the Gnostic worldview this morning. But there is one aspect of Gnosticism that is pertinent to our discussion here, and that is the strict separation that Gnostics saw between the tangible, earthly, and physical realm in which we live and the pure, mystical, and spiritual realm in which God lives and to which we are trying to get. So to put it in really simple terms, Gnostics saw the physical as dirty and the spiritual as clean. That's why, for instance, something like the Incarnation The idea that God would come to earth as a man was impossible for a Gnostic to believe. To participate in something as earthly as childbirth and puberty with the blood and guts and snot. It was just all too much for the Gnostic. And one of the results of adherence to this worldview was that for the Gnostic, the body became unimportant. It was, in fact, by definition, unclean, so it didn't matter what you did with it. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll, right? Whatever. Your body was unimportant. It was yours to play with in whatever way you saw fit. What was important was your spirit. And the religious pursuit was to participate more and more in the life of the spirit and less and less in the life of the body. So, for instance, the phrase... It's just sex makes a lot of sense in a Gnostic worldview. But that's not a Christian teaching. For Christians, the body is good, not bad. Our bodies are an intentional part of God's creation. He formed us like this on purpose. Gnostics looked forward to a time when they would be pure spirits, ridding themselves of their bodies altogether. The Bible teaches a resurrection and a resurrection of the body. Indeed, it's right there in the Apostles' Creed, early creed of the Christian church. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Christians do not seek to escape from their bodies as part of the resurrection. Our bodies are part of the resurrection. So our culture then, 
neo-Gnostic as it is, despite its seeming obsession with sex and those aspects of the body, is trending more and more in a Gnostic direction, subconsciously denigrating the body by treating it as something to which and with which people can do whatever they want, whatever feels good at the moment. The problem, Christopher West writes in his great treatment of John Paul II's Theology of the Body, which embarrassingly for readers like me is called Theology of the Body for Beginners. (laughs) West says, The problem with our sex-saturated culture is not that it overvalues the body and sex. The problem is that it has failed to see just how valuable the body and sex really are. The fact that God created us as embodied creatures and not just ethereal spirits means that our bodies carry great importance. So let's talk specifically about our bodies and sex and what those things mean. God, unlike us, is pure spirit. He is unseen outside of his manifestation on earth in Christ and in a few specifically controlled instances in the Bible. Christianity, therefore, can be thought of as a religion of God's self-disclosure. God wants to reveal himself to us. As we've said, the main way he does that is in Christ. But he has done that in other ways, too. The Bible talks about several. Many of us will have experienced a sense of awe and wonder at God's creation, a beautiful sunrise, power of the ocean. Scripture says that these things too speak to God's glory. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. That's Psalm 19 verse 1. This kind of thing is a certain kind of revelation allowing us to see a reflection of God. But the crown of creation suggests West The thing that more than anything else speaks of God's divine beauty is a man and a woman called to fruitful communion. Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 to 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This first directive of God to man and woman, immediately after they are created, is not simply a commandment to make more people. Be fruitful and multiply is a call to love in the image of God, and therefore to fulfill the very meaning of humanity's being and existence. And to understand this, we have to understand two overarching truths, two pieces of good news about human sex and sexuality as designed by God. Here's the first one, the first big overarching truth, the first piece of good news. God is himself a communion of love. Remember, we worship a triune God, a trinity, three in one. He is Within the Godhead, an eternal sharing of loving relationship. 
the sincere giving of the self to another. This is all happening within God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Real love, sincere, sacrificial, giving love exchanged between the persons of the Trinity. This is at least a way to describe what we mean when we say that God is love. Actual, active loving is happening within God. This is his nature. He is love. Two, the second overarching truth, the second piece of good news about human sex and sexuality as designed by God is that we are destined to share in that communion, in that exchange of love. Follow me now and see how the created order, man and woman coming together in marital union, And being fruitful and multiplying actually points us directly to the character and attributes of God. In creation, God imprinted right in our sexuality a calling to participate in a version of what's going on in the Trinity. That eternal and perfect relationship, that forever and ever exchange of sacrificial love. God created us, male and female, so that we could participate in and point to his love by becoming a sincere gift to one another. And it even goes a step further. That creation-level relationship, man and woman, in sacrificial and sexual marital love, establishes what West calls a communion of persons, not only between the sexes, but also in the normal course of events, with a third that proceeds from them both. That is a child. Be fruitful and multiply. And so we see that the sexual love between a man and a woman within the created order family actually becomes an earthly image of the inner life of the Trinity. That's amazing. There's also a foreshadowing in the created order of man and woman that points to the union and communion between Christ and the church. In Ephesians chapter 5, after instructing the church about how husbands and wives are to relate to one another, Paul writes this, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Then he goes back and quotes Genesis. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Before going on and adding, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. God created us male and female right from the beginning in order that we would live in a kind of holy communion. That communion of persons to which West referred, a communion that foreshadows the ultimate holy communion of Christ and his church. Scripture makes this idea explicit, right? Referring to the church as the bride of Christ. Interestingly, you can also see it by looking in reverse too. the gift of Jesus's body and blood broken and shed for sinners who make up the church celebrated in the Eucharist. That holy communion illuminates and defines the meaning of the communion between man and woman. So taking all of this into account, it becomes clear why God created man and woman 
intimacy and marriage and sex in the way that he did. In order to image, to show the eternal sacrificial love that exists in the Trinity. And how no other sexualized relationship, whether it be two men or two women or two unmarried people, one married person with someone who's not their spouse, or any other imaginable combination, up to and including sinful behavior within heterosexual marriage, it becomes clear how no other sexualized relationship could ever point appropriately to the love that defines God. The God is love that exists because of the never-ending and perfect giving of self within the Godhead. So note, please, that it's not that any other particular arrangement is especially sinful. Just that only one arrangement is faithful to the created order. Everything else is a result of the created order being broken. And as we talked about last week, if we believe that we have an almighty God who speaks into the world and who laid out a godly order of creation, then nothing other than his created order will do. Okay, let's take a break from focusing on the marital relationship and its imaging of God's love for a second and talk about celibacy. I don't want to overlook celibacy, even though the Bible talks at much more length about marriage and sexuality in marriage because of the weight of the imagery behind it. But I want to be sure to talk about celibacy because it is one of the two sexual states that are outlined by God as good. Sexual fidelity within lifelong heterosexual marriage on the one hand and celibacy on the other. Now it's worth noting here that the phrase sexual minorities is an inappropriate one, at least in the church. There's no such thing. The same sexual standard applies to everyone. We are all equally under this law. Fidelity in marriage, chastity in singleness. Now, it's true that, as we've said, the human person is created, male and female, to be a participant in imaging the self-giving love of God's Trinitarian interrelationships. Christopher West says that the body... For this reason, every human body has what he calls a spousal meaning. In other words, we are created to be a gift to another. And this actually, and perhaps counterintuitively, is true both in marriage and in celibacy. In marriage, you are primarily designed to be a gift to your spouse. And in celibacy, you are primarily designed to be a gift to the church. This means that marriage and celibacy are actually much more closely related than we might think at first glance. After all, they seem pretty different. But both vocations, and I'm talking here about both permanent lifelong celibacy and the calling to chaste celibacy before marriage. Marriage and celibacy both give a fully realized answer to the question about the meaning of sexuality. An answer that the world has gotten completely backward and wrong. For the world, the meaning of sexuality is something like self-gratification. This is one reason for the advocacy of cohabitation and sexual experimentation before marriage. Something that even some in the church are beginning to fall into. After all, if you don't take some test drives 
how will you know if this car is right for you? If you don't have sex before marriage, the thinking goes, how can you possibly know if your partner will be sexually satisfying to you? But in God's sexual economy, and again, this holds true for both the married and the celibate, the meaning of sexuality is self-donation in the image of God. Self-donation in the image of God. This is why our world thinks that both people who are committed to lifelong marriage, that is staying off AshleyMadison.com, and people who feel a call to vocational singleness and chastity, or who are, quote, saving themselves for marriage, this is why our world thinks these people, you know, people like us, are crazy. They do not understand this at all. Remember, our culture's problem is not that it thinks of sex and the body too highly, but actually devalues them. And so it makes all the sense in the world that our culture turns around and then devalues both lifelong marital fidelity and celibacy. Because both, in the eyes of the world, make no sense. So if the point of our sexuality is a calling to give ourselves away in a trinity-mirroring, life-giving love, you can see that a person committed to celibacy, again, either vocationally or during the time before marriage, a person committed to celibacy does not reject that call. The celibate person just lives it out in a different way. Every man, because of that spousal meaning of his body, is called in some sense to be a husband, and a father. This may mean in a traditional family, or it may mean in celibacy, a certain kind of service to the church. The same is true for women. Because of the spousal meaning of their bodies, every woman is called to be in some sense a wife and mother. And again, this is ordinarily expressed in the family, but it can also be a vocation of lived out service to the church. So, That's how things are supposed to be. What went wrong? It was, of course, the serpent whispering in Eve's ear. And then Adam and Eve believing the lie. Did God really say? Is this really the best way? Do you really think that God has your best interests at heart? Shouldn't you humans really be the ones who decide right from wrong and what to do with these bodies you've been given aren't they yours i mean if what i've said so far is true that the body sex and sexuality are meant to proclaim and point to our union with god it makes all the sense in the world for the enemy in order to break apart that union to attack right at that spot right at your body your sex and your sexuality satan is no fool He knows that everything we've been talking about this morning is the truth. The body and sex are meant, as we've said, to proclaim and point to the divine mystery. And Satan desperately wants that proclamation stifled. Therefore, from his perspective, men and women must be prevented from recognizing the mystery of God in their bodies. And so it is that we are tempted. Your body is yours. Do with it what you like. Did God really say? And of course, this temptation 
plays itself out most uncontrollably inside our heads. It's no accident that Jesus preaches that looking at a woman with lust in your heart is the same thing as committing adultery with her. The sin is in the breaking of the connection to God. Once the divine mystery has been profaned and denied, once our bodies, our sex, and our sexualities have come to be considered our own, the form the sin takes is less important than the fact that we have put ourselves in the place of God. Or tried to, like Adam and Eve, reaching up to be like God. And now, because of sin, we are ashamed of our nakedness. We talked last week about identity, a concept which re-enters our discussion at this point. There are some who accept the biblical teaching about sexual practice, that is, that the Bible calls either for fidelity in marriage or chastity in singleness, but who define themselves by disordered sexual desires, imagining that if they do not act on these desires, they have remained faithful to God's call. However, Jesus' location of the sin in the heart levels the playing field for all of us. All of our desires that are outside God's plan for identity, our bodies, our sex and sexualities, even if they aren't acted on or indulged, a state that the church has traditionally called concupiscence, these remain sin and must be confessed to God, mortified in the flesh and redeemed by Christ. Article 9 of our 39 Articles of Religion is very clear about this. Sin, says the article, deserves God's wrath and damnation. And this infection of nature doth remain, yea, in them that are regenerated. And although there is no condemnation for them that believe and are baptized, yet the apostle doth confess that concupiscence and lust hath of itself the nature of sin. In other words, Christians still sin even if they don't act on or indulge their lustful desires. The lie that Adam and Eve believed first and that each one of us is now prone to believe, this lie that we can be defined by our own use of our bodies is the underlying story of the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. She too had been deceived by this lie. She was looking for fulfillment outside of God's ordered plan for sex. She was engaging in sex acts with men who were not her husband, but she couldn't find the fulfillment she sought. She's she's brought before Jesus and he refuses to condemn her. Notably, he doesn't say that her behavior is okay. In fact, he tells her to go and sin no more. But this is not so much a command as it is a promise, a gift. This woman desperately searching for a love that continued to elude her, would not have heard this as a law, wondering, who is this man to tell me what I can and cannot do with my body? She has encountered now in Jesus the love that she was truly looking for. Her view of herself, her body and sex, has in this interaction been reordered completely. She is transformed, renewed and affirmed in the deepest part of her being as a woman. Go and sin no more is another way of saying, go and be the woman God created you to be. That woman was brought to Jesus against her will. But in a sense, that's true for all of us. After all, 
Paul says in Romans that no one seeks for God. But what we can do by God's power, we can do what that woman did by order of the mob. We can fall, be thrown at Jesus' feet. We throw ourselves on the mercy of the court. That's what sinners like us can do. And counterintuitively and thankfully, that's actually how we grow in sexual purity, which is what I want to spend a moment talking about now. A professor I had in seminary once made the comment that the reason his marriage was still together was that he understood, he knew that it could be ruined by him at any moment, that he could blow it like that. We were all shocked to hear that at the time, but now I understand what he meant. He meant that his marriage was still together because he was completely reliant on the grace and mercy of God shown to him in Jesus Christ, to image in him and in his wife the self-giving love of the Godhead that we've been talking about. On his own and in his own strength, he understood that it was impossible. Growing in sexual purity certainly demands a human effort. And so we discipline ourselves and when necessary, allow the church to discipline us But it is a human effort carried along by supernatural grace. Remember, the woman caught in adultery received Jesus' words to go and sin no more as a gift, free of condemnation. Indeed, it was a new life in Christ given to her, the least deserving. This is what we rely on. Before we wrap up, With a final illustration, we're going to dip into the Christopher West, John Paul II well one more time to illustrate the importance of falling at the feet of Christ as the only way our desire for sexual purity can see fruit. West suggests that there are three directions one can turn when the so-called lusts of the flesh flare up in your life, when you find yourself tempted to live in your body or with your sexuality in a way outside of God's plan. These three paths are indulgence, repression, and redemption. As sinful people, it's very easy to forget that third one, redemption. So most of us really only consider two of these choices when such a desire raises its ugly head. We imagine we can either indulge it or repress it. Now as Christians, those who have submitted ourselves to God, we know that indulgence is sin. We know that's not supposed to be an option for us. We still do it sometimes, of course, but more often, if we get the opportunity, we turn to repression. We try to turn our back on the desire to stuff it down deep inside us, hoping that it might go away. But remember, the devil is no fool. Repression, I think, is his workshop. It is there that our temptations, our repressed desires grow and grow until they overpower us. Thankfully, like we saw in the story of the woman caught in adultery, there is another way. Rather than repressing lusts by pushing them down into the subconscious or trying to ignore them or just crossing our fingers and hoping that they go away on their own, we must surrender our lusts to Christ. And allow him to slay them and then redeem us. In other words, we fall at Jesus' feet 
and repent again and again. And believe the gospel afresh. And that's how we grow. A lifetime of acknowledged sin, repentance, absolution, and new life over and over again until that day when we are no longer merely imagers of that divine, mutually self-donating love, but active participants in it. Last week, we ended with a real-life example, that of Bruce Jenner's transgenderism, to illustrate what we had said about identity. I'm going to do the same thing this morning, but I'm going to combine this week's topic, sexuality, with last week's topic, identity. I hope you've seen already this morning how inextricably linked these sinful impulses are. In January of this year, the ACNA College of Bishops released a document called Sexuality and Identity, a pastoral statement from the College of Bishops. Now, the ACNA's position on sex and sexuality has been clear from its founding. Article 8 of the Jerusalem Declaration, the creed-like document that came out of the meeting which called for the creation of the ACNA, and a document which members of Grace Anglican agree to when they sign our membership covenant, states the following. We acknowledge God's creation of humankind as male and female and the unchangeable standard of Christian marriage between one man and one woman as the proper place for sexual intimacy and the basis of the family. We repent of our failures to maintain this standard and call for a renewed commitment to lifelong fidelity in marriage and abstinence for those who are not married. So the bishops didn't release this statement out of a need to clarify that. What they did feel like they needed to address was how some Christians, Anglicans included, were, one, trying to uphold the biblical sexual ethic of chastity outside of lifelong heterosexual marriage, but two, referring to themselves in terms of a sexual identity or orientation, in this case, a movement of so-called gay Christians. You can read the statement for yourselves. I recommend that you do. It's on the reading list. But if I was to summarize it, the three main things that it said were, one, we as bishops in the ACNA want to pastorally care for and really love Christians who are struggling with same-sex attractions. And two, we want to be clear that the shed blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient to atone for any sin. And three, we advise against using language such as gay Christian because it can allow people to find at least part of if not the main part of their identity, not in Christ, but in a disordered desire. Instead, they suggested that the church use the language of Christians who experience same-sex attraction. And this acknowledges the desire may be part of the sinner's life forever, but is not anything remotely like a constitutive part of his or her identity in Christ. You can read about the reaction all over the Anglican internet. It won't serve us to go into it too much here. Suffice to say, I support the bishop's statement wholeheartedly acknowledging, as it does, the two things we've talked about these last two weeks. We as Christians are no one other than new creations in Christ. The old has gone, the new has come. And though our bodies, our sex, and our sexuality are profoundly powerful forces in our lives they have been made by God for a specific purpose to image the love that he exhibits within himself and the love that he has shown us in Christ so no adjectival modifier for Christian is sufficient 
Everything is left behind at the cross. Sex is powerful, but there is no such thing for a Christian as sexual identity. We are to put the spousal meanings of our bodies to work, either serving our spouse in fidelity and love, or serving the church in chastity and love, or both. This is the vocation to which we have been called. This is the gift which Christ, by his finished work, has given us. Let's pray. Dear God, remind us that it is in the giving of ourselves that we live into the plan you have for our bodies. Show us the way to be faithful. If we are called to be married, give us fidelity. If we are called to be single, give us chastity. Help us desire those things. Turn our hearts so that we love your law. Show us compassion when we fall. Help us to show compassion to others when they fall. Above all, help us to remember that the purity we strive for and that you call us to is only possible in you and by your grace in Christ's finished work for us. We pray that you would continue your redeeming work in our lives, and we ask this in your Son, our Savior's name. Amen.